Welcome! My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my extremely outlying friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we embark on a sometimes unhinged discussion of outlying and influential observations. Where do they come from? How are they identified? And what do we do with them? Along the way, we also discuss the outlier bell, stubbornness, pre-holiday grievances, Polly, Sesame Street, being more or less likely, Greg's freak brother, operas, Nebraska cornfields, talking to volleyballs, stepping on rakes, name that dissertation, butt cramps, and acetone. We hope you enjoy today's episode. What was that? Uh, that is a new feature, at least for today. That is the outlier tone. We do this together, right? We okay. coordinate this podcast. Mm, sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> what is the outlier? What did you call it? We'll call it the outlier bell. Here's the deal. Every time the outlier bell goes off, one of us has to tell something about ourselves that is outlying or weird or odd. What do you think? You in? Is that going to be the entire episode? <laughs> Because we really could do 60 minutes just on that. It's a three-parter, people. (laughs) (laughs) I like the topic of outliers, and I consider you to be an extremely outlying person. Thank Mm -hmm. you. (laughs) You're very welcome. Everybody has experience with outliers. I think people like us, to some extent, are weird and outlying. And we all have outlier stories, I bet you. In fact, I challenge you right now to tell me an outlier story go about like me personally or like a real data thing ah all right yes good i'm confused okay i'm an outlier in my ability (laughs) to follow instructions hang on i'm programming a shut the up tone (laughs) wait there's a new tone i can't keep these straight yeah tell me something unusual and outlying about yourself If you were to create a marginal univariate distribution of stubbornness, (laughs) I would be an atypical point on that distribution. (laughs) I was in a martial arts test, and he called me out on the mat, surrounded by a ring of people, probably 50, 60, 70 people. And he said, Patrick, I want you to try to do 10 push-ups. And I did 10 push-ups. And I sat back on my feet, and he said... Patrick, I want you to try to do 10 push-ups. And I did 10 push-ups. An hour later, I was shaking, sweating, quivering. I couldn't see straight. And he said, Patrick, I want you to try to do 10 push-ups. It became this battle of wills is he wanted Mm -hmm. me to not do 10 push-ups. He wanted me to only try to do 10 push-ups. That's just one of a thousand examples Mm -hmm. of where I'm like an old blue tick hound on a porch with a bone. I can chew on that all day and you better not take it away from me. (laughs) My only response is lucky Andrea. (laughs) And my teenage daughters, because wow, it's a real joy for them too. Is the bell symmetric? Does one bell as we both do it or is it kind of random throughout? We will wait for the bell to ring again and then it'll be my turn and then we'll alternate. How about that? I like it. I bet you have a non-super stubborn outlier story too. I do. Outliers and influential observations are one of my favorite topics in everything that we do. And I am going to maybe do some pre-holiday airing of grievances about certain things as the hour unfolds. So I'm just going to prepare you for that. The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now you're going to hear about it. But I was doing my master's. Mm -hmm. I was interested in parental alcoholism as a risk factor for problem behavior in children. And I was particularly interested if a non-alcoholic mother could protect her child from the negative influences of an alcoholic father. All my interactions came out in the opposite direction they should have. In every single one, the kids at most risk were those using the least alcohol and drugs. Hmm. And I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and I looked at plots, and I looked at diagnostics, and I did all of this work and nothing. I was grousing about it, and we have a lab manager. For you researchers out there, you know that the secret of great science is having a one 
wonderful lab manager, and we had Polly. And she had her feet up on her desk, and she said, oh, it's probably the Juvie kids. And I said, I'm sorry? And she said, well, we interviewed three kids in juvenile detention. She said, you know, we've talked about this at every research (laughs) meeting we've had. I'm such a bad liar. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Those Juvie kids. kids. Mm -hmm. There were three kids who were interviewed in lockdown. They had every risk factor, but on the substance use, none. No alcohol, no drug. Now, everybody knows that you actually have easier access to drugs and alcohol sometimes in lockdown than you do outside. (laughs) But if you're being interviewed, no kid is going to say yes to that. Sure, sure. And so the kids were highest on risk factor and zeros on any negative outcome. Three out of 400. And I removed them, and all the interactions flipped around to exactly as you would expect. And the punchline is, one, everybody needs a poly. (laughs) And two, none of these kids came up in any examination of distribution, of extreme cases, of anything that would cause you problems. You had to know the backstory of where their data came from. I, too, have an outlier story. One time, I was gathering data from graduate students, and I was giving them a survey. And then you would just feed the bubble sheets into a scanner. That would convert it into data. You would get a file. And I was analyzing the data, and oh my gosh, what a mess. Nothing made sense. And I went and got the original forms. And what I realized was these post-baccalaureate graduate students who are going to be teachers, they had not actually answered my questions. They had bubbled in shapes. And so you would see F, U, C, right? And so they'd bubbled in special little messages to me using those bubble forms. (laughs) That was so thoughtful. Wasn't it? When I went through and pulled out a large number of people who left me these kinds of messages. (laughs) Then the data made a little bit more sense. I will never forget that as a lesson to never gather data from real people again. So this is one of my favorite topics. The reason is that you have to use your head. There's Mm -hmm. nothing pre-programmed. There's no if-then-else kind of approach to it. You've got to lean back and think about what is my population? Is my sample representative of my population? Is an extreme observation extreme because it's an error? Or Mm -hmm. is it extreme because it's just an unlikely observation in a single distribution? Or is it extreme because is it a subpopulation that's mixed. I view all of this as univariate and multivariate poking sticks, Mm -hmm. which is we do all our work, we fit our models, we get our results, and then we step back and say, how stable are these findings? To what extent is my core mediated effect due to one or a small number of observations? And why I love this as a topic is, Even if it is due to one or a small number, that may be okay. You just need to know that. I would like to work through what is an outlier, how do we define them, how do we detect Mm -hmm. them. The fun part of talking about is what do you do about it? Mm -hmm. And then talk about can we bring some classic stuff into maybe more modern analyses in a way that we haven't. So then the starting question with all of... Damn... Okay. I like this. (laughs) It's that Star Trek one where they have this almost insurrection on the ship, and Scotty, who's brand new to the ship, says, I like this ship. You know, it's exciting. So this new ding is, I like this. Uh I like this podcast. It's exciting. (laughs) That's my Scottish accent, by the way. That was was really good, Patrick. All right. Let's see. Something outlying about me. Uh, And if you don't have one, I have a few I could offer. (laughs) I've made a rather lengthy list here as you've been talking. I'm uncomfortable asking other people how they think we are outliers. (laughs) (laughs) That's a one-way ticket to nowhere, I think. If you made a distribution of the number of times that people's pictures appear on the planet Mars, that would be a grossly zero-inflated distribution. I would be a one. Huh? Huh? Discuss. No. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Is this an uh... appropriate picture? Is this like a (laughs) dick pic? I mean... (laughs) Talk to me, buddy. I am intrigued. It is, but we didn't think anybody would see it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Usually I do email when you talk, but you have my attention. Good friend of mine in college went on to design some aspects of the robotic arm of the first Mars rover. He and some of his buddies were allowed to send some things up with the payload. And one of the things that was up there is a picture of him and me when we're in college. So it's a small distribution, but I would like to think I'm an outlier in that one. I think you are indeed. All right, so I've been prattling on a bit. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us what do we mean by outliers? Because I feel like there's a lot of loose language used, often interchangeably, that maybe shouldn't be. And Mm -hmm. it'd be nice to just get some shared terminology as we go into it. I don't know that I'm going to be able to bring the clarity that you're hoping for, at least not with respect to the definition of an outlier. But an outlier is, I think, inherently vague, right? It's something that's abnormal. And the question is, what does abnormal mean? Because things can be abnormal in a variety of ways. Do you have a good, tight definition of outlier? I don't, but I have three terms that I would like to distinguish as we navigate the conversation. Okay. None of these have firm definitions. Merriam-Webster defines outlier (laughs) as... Maybe we can just agree on these three things because I often find them used interchangeably either in literature or in a dissertation defense meeting. And I think it's helpful to just put a thumbtack in each of the three. Okay. How I was taught an outlier is simply an observation that we might deem to be discrepant in some ways. Mm-hmm. Maybe in a univariate histogram way, maybe in a bivariate scatter plot. It's the Sesame Street song, as one of these things mm-hmm. is not like the other. One of these things is not like the others. Mm-hmm. And so an outlier is just, huh, look at that. <laughs> Huh? Look at that. That's uh-huh. the current Hancock definition of outlier is, huh, look at that. All right, so that's outlier. Uh-huh. But then a point can have what we're going to call leverage. Mm-hmm. You can be an outlier but not have leverage. You can have leverage but not be an outlier. You can be both. Leverage is more of a multivariate kind of evaluation on your set of predictors And that is what it sounds like, right? When you think about leverage of lifting something or if you're propping something up with some kind of fulcrum is that greater leverage means that you have a greater ability to move something. So leverage is a specific kind of observation in which the potential is higher for it to wreak havoc. It's kind of like the movie of The Usual Suspects which is another requirement (laughs) on the Quantitude Movie Club. Absolutely. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You would look at a point with high leverage and say, huh, I'm going to keep an eye on him. Write that great line out of No Country for Old Men. I'm going to make a special little project out of you. Decided to make you a special project of mine. You ain't going to have to come look for me at all. (laughs) But we still, with leverage, don't know whether they are actually influencing the outcomes of the model. And that brings us to the third one, which is influence. And that's the poke and stick. Influence is, okay, so it's high leverage. It's a suspect. We think that it could be problematic. Influences is it. And that is just full bore embrace the poke and stick. What we're mm-hmm. going to do is a whole series of things where we're going to estimate a parameter with the observation in, we're going to estimate a parameter with the observation out, and we're going to see if that parameter differs in some meaningful way. So I think it's helpful to think about outliers, leverage, and influence. So for folks who are new to the concept of outliers, there's a lot of stuff in what Patrick just said. At its simplest, you can just think of an outlier as something that stands out within a particular univariate distribution. Just think very, very simply if you made a distribution of scores and you have one that is sort of sticking out like a sore thumb relative to the rest of the distribution, that might be determined to be a univariate outlier. Can I go on two pre-holiday rants? Yes, please. Would you? I got a lot of problems with you people. (laughs) It's January. (laughs) There are two things getting into it. Mm -hmm. We've talked in prior episodes, and all of you listening have been exposed to these in various classes of thinking about assumptions that underlie an estimator. And we think about, as a really important thing, things like homoskedasticity, Mm -hmm. independence, 
normality of residuals, linearity, proper model specification. And all of us are really good in thinking about that mm -hmm. and really good in looking at things like heteroscedasticity or normality and saying, should we use a sandwich estimator or a robust estimation or should we include a powered term? Obviously, I'm not going to take a stand against those things. I think the potential for influential observations eclipses almost all of those. That mm. notion that you can have one or a small number of cases that are influencing some or all of your results is a much greater clear and present danger than mm. are your errors heteroscedastic or homoscedastic. I think that's like the least of your concerns compared to these potential for outline observations. Now I will go on more of a grievance. Mm -hmm. And this does not count toward my next holiday episode. I'm just telling you right now, this is a freebie okay. that I'm giving myself. I think as a field, we have been so pistol whipped by the replication crisis and by <laughs> questionable research practices and by researcher mm -hmm. degrees of freedom that we are all so terrified of doing anything that might look like we're not doing pre-registration, a priori, formal confirmatory tests that we're more and more less likely. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> We are more or less likely to say, what if I drop this case? Oh, yeah, he said 80, but I'm going to cap it at 50 and see what the impact is. I think that we have been publicly shamed into not doing those kinds of sensitivity analyses or else we're going to be accused of questionable research practices. I think we're just cutting out the legs of the chair underneath us and that's my free grievance for February. I like that rant very, very much. And I will say you're actually being disingenuous as a scientist if you are not engaging with your data and making those kinds of decisions. The goal of science isn't to stick to a plan necessarily. It's to have a plan but it's to have enough wherewithal to know when it's time to deviate from that plan. And sometimes that deviation means the identification of aberrant observations and making good decisions about those observations, not just flushing them down the toilet and pretending they never happened, but documenting what happened, telling your story. We took these cases out. Here's why. Judge me. That's what science is. Two other things I just wanted to add a little bit more meat to with regard to the outliers. Some... Ah. Oh. Well, that's your ding, because I did the last one. <laughs> oh, unding, unding. <laughs> Tell us something about you. Oh, that sucks. Uh, in a univariate distribution of propensity to be embarrassed, I am extremely low. Oh. As my family has pointed out to my own detriment, <laughs> like there is general belief that if I were a little bit more self-aware and a mm -hmm. little bit more introspective, I would have a more appropriate level of ability to be embarrassed in a public situation. <laughs> but there are caveats to that. Mm -hmm. I can be embarrassed on rare occasion when it's unbeknownst to me, right? So I can say a preposterous thing because I'm bored at a cocktail party and I just want to see people respond. Mm -hmm. But when I don't mean to, then I can become embarrassed. So we were doing grad admissions in the quant program. We were doing a very good-natured negotiation of who was going to invite whom. I had a candidate. Bauer had a candidate. We had one slot left. And I said, okay, Bauer, show me your Smith and I'll show you my Johnson. <laughs> my candidate's name was Johnson. And there was silence, and I just turned crimson because I hadn't meant to be inappropriate. I was accidentally inappropriate. I'm just marking some things in my copy of the DSM. So Isn't it fun? It's like watching a baseball there, game at home and there. saying, oh, that scored as a double. <laughs> Come on, Curran, he's two symptoms away from an Axis <laughs> 2 diagnosis. All right, you started some numbered list. Yeah, we mentioned just briefly about univariate outliers. Sometimes outliers are outliers that only occur under certain conditions. You might say that that value is not an outlier except in a particular context. So sometimes they're called contextual or conditional kinds of outliers. As a simple example, a 70-degree day might not be that unusual in Winnipeg, but if it's January, it's very unusual. 
Sometimes there are multivariate outliers or sometimes called collective outliers when there's nothing unusual about any of the scores that you have. It's really when they come together to create something that doesn't really occur. My guess is you surely have an example of a multivariate kind of outlier. I am serious and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> I'm sorry, I am contractually bound. No, 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 we've met. All right, I will give you a quick example. It is not unusual for someone to be six foot one, and it is not unusual for someone to weigh 119 pounds, but it is unusual for someone to be six foot one and 119 pounds, like my brother used to be. He was a freak, a freak. <laughs> he was so skinny. Chris could put both legs behind his head and dive his upper body through the hole that he made. An example of that is the classic Tufta analysis of the space shuttle, the loss of the Challenger on launch, and mm -hmm. all of the data that they had was within normal parameters univariately until you cross them. And mm -hmm. then it was an extraordinary outlier when you considered them all simultaneously. I believe a lot of the more pernicious problems arise from these multivariate kinds mm -hmm. of combinations of observations, and not only multivariate in the predictor space, but also a lot of what people think about outliers is there's an Easter egg out there somewhere to find. You've got to find that one case. But with the Juvie kids, there are actually three of them. So not only do you have an outlier in multivariate space, but you may have a small number of observations that only when considered jointly are unduly influencing. Well, see, there I am using the word unduly again, as that's not necessarily unduly. It's just that mm -hmm. they are influencing. Why this is a big point to me is a lot of what we study across the fields of psychology and behavioral sciences, education, often we study outliers, right? Mm -hmm. So my interest over 25 years have been risk and protective factors for children's drug use. By definition, I am interested in that tiny number of 12-year-olds who are using drugs or getting drunk. We can always make an effect go away if we drop enough cases. One of the big challenges is we have these subset of individuals who are driving the finding, but those may be mm -hmm. the very subset that we're interested in. And if we make enough of them go away, all our results are going to go away. So it's a vexing problem. There are lots of reasons that we get outliers, and you keep getting pulled toward one of those reasons, and I think that's a really good reason to land on. Let me run through a couple of them to get them off the table, because of course you can have outliers because there's a data entry error. Always check your data. We understand that. You can also have just weird cases that occur randomly, right? When you've got a simple distribution of cases and you gather enough data, you're going to get some observations that are three, even four standard deviations away, even though they're part of the population you care about. Yes, those kinds of things are happening. But the thing that you're alluding to, which I think is the most important aspect, is when the people really are from a special population or a different population, and you have to make a decision as to whether or not they are part of the story that you want to tell or they're getting in the way of the story that you want to tell. And I don't mean that you remove them because you have a cleaner story. I mean, they're not literally part of the population to which you wish to make inferences. And that to me is where the challenge is. What's odd is regression diagnostics when I came up through the system was huge. Mm -hmm. Like that was a big oh, yeah. part of teaching. And I feel like it's much less huge now. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are differences across the disciplines and how it's taught, but I will routinely be on a dissertation committee or a master's committee where no diagnostics are done at all. Mm -hmm. I will ask about it, and here's a response I often get, which is, oh, we use Qualtrics, so there can't be any out-of-bound values. And it's equating outlier with invalid. So it goes back to what you were just alluding to, is yes, mm -hmm. there are data entry problems, but actually in the way that data is often collected, those are collected in a way that you can't have a value of 15 on a scale of 1 to 10. 
I've had a student in a committee meeting say, we don't have any influential observations because Qualtrics programs all within the valid range of the data. Even back in the day, I was less concerned about data entry errors. Those should have been caught before you ever fit your first model right, is that's a whole paragraph in your dissertation of data screening, data cleaning, data validation. What we're talking about is we're just going to take as given that the data is valid in the sense that it's within the bounds that we have defined. Everything we're talking about goes beyond that, is okay, it's a valid observation. And as you say, is it just a low probability? We talked on a prior episode, respect sampling variability. Sometimes you get 10 heads in a row. That happens. Not very often, but it happens. But then that other one is jabbing us with a really sharp stick of what is our population? Do we have a representative sample of that population? And might we have mixtures of subpopulations Mm -hmm. that we're inadvertently pooling together? Oh, all right. Your oh. turn, buddy. All right. <laughs> Shoot. Uh, and I, I started this. Yeah, how it? are you liking that idea now? Right, 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 right. Okay. Uh, if you took a random sample of people my age. Those who are still alive. <laughs> That's right. <It's> a, <laughs> there's some censoring. If you took both of the people who are my age of it <laughs> and made a distribution of the number of operas that they have seen. It would be a very, very positively skewed distribution. I have seen well over a hundred operas. When I was growing up, although I was mostly raised by a single dad, my mom remarried an opera singer. So I've seen more opera than any human being should have. And I guarantee you I'm an outlier for someone, at least in my age range. Come on, how many operas have you seen? One. (laughs) Field trip? (laughs) I won tickets. Somehow in LA and my wife and I went and Uh I love the music because it was orchestrated, but the singers kept drowning it out. And I was like, would you shut the up for just (laughs) one minute? So one quick thought, and it also goes back to dissertation meetings that I've been in. A lot of people will say, well, we gathered it using Qualtrics, so there aren't outliers. And that's Mm -hmm. not a great answer. And the other one is, oh, we don't have outliers because I have a large sample. One case is not going to drive that. There are two problems I have with that. Mm -hmm. One, you don't know that. That's the whole point of the poking stick is we got to see. I had three juvie kids in 400 cases that drove the entire results. And it was because I had a three-way interaction. If you take a little bit discrepant times a little bit discrepant times a little bit discrepant, you have a lot discrepant. So one is, is that's not prima facie support that, oh, I have 300 people, so I can't have influential observations. The other one overlaps with your point, which is if it's a subpopulation issue, if it's a mixture issue, if you have a little Mm. cluster, 1% or 2% scales up or down to whatever sample size you have. If you have a sample of 1,000, but you have 1% of those who are drawn from a different population and are inappropriately driving your results on the full sample, it's irrelevant what your overall size is. It leads me to ask you, how do you detect outliers? What's your Mm. regimen? And I completely agree that a lot of the stuff that we were dragged through back in the day when we were learning about statistics during the Nixon administration or whenever the (laughs) heck we took our statistics. (laughs) Well, I'm not a crook. All right, so do you have some favorite ways that you have to detect outliers if you're doing data screening? I do, although I cluster them into two types. And the first type, which I require all my students to do yet, I kind of don't care, and I focus on the (laughs) second type. I know, it's difficult to live with me. I appreciate that. I am a big fan of graphical analyses. And it's not just the usual stuff. Of course, look at univariate plots. Of course, look at bivariate plots. There's some very cool things where you can look at trivariate plots and rotate them in 3D space. Beat your data to death with just simple graphics and distributions and box plots. Mm -hmm. The more important ones, I feel like, graphically are looking at what are sometimes called partial plots. 
They are more model-based and you partial out effects of your regressor on the outcome and the regressor on other regressors and you get what are functionally various forms of residual plots. There are other, what are sometimes called model-free estimates of the hat matrix. That's one of my favorite, the hat matrix H. Right. <laughs> and I remember this from Leona's class, X. X prime, X inverse, X prime. You have X prime, X inverse mm -hmm. as your sums of squares and cross products, and you have X and X prime as pre and post multiplier, and you get an N by N matrix, so this massive matrix, but on the diagonal is a mm -hmm. little value H sub I for everybody, and it is an almost mm -hmm. magical value. Isn't it? And oh, we could do an hour yes. conversation about H. <laughs> a love affair with H. But what's fascinating is there very cool properties about what do the NHs sum to, but also a lot of other measures that we're used to can all be expressed as a function of H. And so I like all of those, but again, it goes back to the usual suspects. Well, I believe in God, and the only thing that scares me is Kaiser Soze. Which is all of these things identify somebody who might hassle me, but it doesn't tell me who is mm -hmm. hassling me. I find them interesting, but at the end of the day, I don't care. Yes or no to two key guidelines, Mahalanobis distance kinds of measures for points from a distribution. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> they're not influence measure. I want a poke and stick, and Mahalanobis is not a poke and stick. It can correlate with the poke and stick, but it might not also. So everything for you is poke and stick. Right? Life is paying the reaper, the poke and stick, whack-a-mole. <laughs> Let's poke and stick our way through this. Thinking about poking stick as being a mental model for how one goes about identifying these particular points, how do you work your poke and stick in the whole outlier framework here? Within the regression framework, my biggest go-to values I want to see are DF fits and DF betas. There are mm -hmm. other case-based, you know, studentized residuals, studentized deleted residuals, jackknife residuals. There are all these things. But if you were to banish me to a desert island with a volleyball with their face painted on it. I would rather take my chance out there on the ocean than to stay here spending the rest of my life talking to a volleyball. And just <laughs> one cluster of diagnostics, I would do DF fits and uh -huh. DF betas. <laughs> As best as I can remember, DF just stands for difference, difference in fits, difference in betas. And mm -hmm. little known fact is the S on the end is not plural, it's standardized. There's DF fit and DF beta, which is in the raw metric. DF fits mm -hmm. and DF betas are in the standardized metric. In a nutshell, these are iconic of poking stick. A DF fit, mm -hmm. you compute Y hat for case I when it is in the sample, and you compute Y hat for case I when it is out of the sample, and you look for the difference between the two. That's the fit, DF mm -hmm. fit, difference in fit. And then you standardize it so that you can make sense of the values. All right, so that is simply the extent to which if the case is in the model or out of the model, how does the Y hat change? If it doesn't change at all, it has mm -hmm. very little impact on their own prediction. Now, you got to keep track of these because a DF fit, there's a value for every observation in the sample because it's at the level of Y hat. DF betas... Mm -hmm. There's going to be one for every individual on every predictor. So let's say I have three mm -hmm. predictor regression. A DF beta is it computes the regression parameter with case I in the sample. It computes the regression parameter for case I out of the sample, takes the difference and standardizes it. This is a per person per predictor measure that evaluates, all right, if you drop this case, how much does the regression coefficient change? Larger mm -hmm. values indicate Ah, that case has a bigger impact on the value of that regression parameter. Very cool, very intuitive, but a big part of the problem is you only take it one case at a time. And so my three juvie kids, mm -hmm. I actually did DF fits mm -hmm. and DF betas, and it didn't flag the three juvie kids because they were messing with things jointly. And so the DF fits and DF betas are not super well suited for identifying clusters of observations because at least in the traditional form, they're taking one case at mm -hmm. a time. 
So give me a volleyball and a coconut yep. and DF fits and DF betas, and I'm a happy man. <laughs> I think we did it. You're a happy man for regression. Oh, that's another conversation. Yeah, so, and I want to move toward that conversation, actually. Let me ask you your opinion of something. Can you view an outlier as a case that falls on the regression line or on the regression surface, but it just falls pretty far away? That gets back to my triplet at the beginning. Yeah. Let's say you have an extreme observation. Do a super simple XY plot, and you have a line, a regression line, and you have an observation that follows the line but is at the highest value of X and the highest value of Y. That is an outlier. It has no leverage and it has no influence. Mm -hmm. I don't care about that case. Let me poke at you <laughs> with your own poke and stick. It will have a big effect potentially on the standard error that you have associated with your test of things. You don't get a change in fit. Yeah, that's true. So that means that your interval estimates associated with things can be influenced. So DF beta is really targeted around a point estimate. And so one of the things that I at least like to think about, I don't know what the hell to do with it, but I like to think about is the sensitivity of all aspects of the analysis that we have done, whether it's with regard to the predicted values, which in this case aren't affected, whether it's with regard to slopes, which in this case aren't affected, or if it's related to the standard errors or, you know, the degree of precision with which we estimate things. And it's that kind of case where a point also can be influential. I would like the scope of our sensitivity analysis here to include all of that kind of stuff with the volleyball and the coconut. I completely agree. I'm being a little hyperbolic by saying I don't care about that. But my conversation up to this point really has been more focused on the point estimates and the leverage and influence and observation can have on that beta hat or whatever the model parameter estimate is. And absolutely, these things can address things like standard errors. Mean squared errors are squared. All of those can be impacted. There are two directions that I want to go. Oh, you're up. Wait, is it me? It's you. I'm losing track of these things. Let's see, you did interplanetary <laughs> pick, and then you did some other one. I don't know. I was checking email. Um, yeah. If you were to create an age-adjusted distribution of broken bones, oh. I would be inordinately high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't have an exact count, but it is in mm -hmm. the 20 range, maybe higher. Very nice. Now, what's interesting is I would like to say it's because I'm a daredevil, I'm a push-the-limit. <laughs> it turns out I'm just not very good at a lot of stuff. I stepped on a rake. Um, <laughs> I skied into a tree. Uh -huh. I rode a mountain bike into a tree. Uh -huh. I took a line drive softball to the face. So none of these are like, oh, yeah, back when I was in the in Nam. <laughs> a lot of them are just stepping on a rake kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know that I'm in the 20s. I'm definitely in double digits for sure. My nose several times, leg or ankle four times, uh, lots of fingers and toes. So really what you're highlighting is you're also above average on competitiveness. <laughs> I thought we were talking about me here for a second, but evidently we're talking about you. I might be above average on competitiveness, but I'm not above you on competitiveness. <laughs> Oh, uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so right. what do we do? Yeah, what do we do? We've identified these observations as outlying. However, we have defined outlying through whatever diagnostic approaches that we have used. What do you do now? We are pistol whipped by questionable research practices and we do nothing at all. We ignore them. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, we identify them and say, wait a minute, I can transform that away. If you throw a square root on it, it goes away. Or third, you sharpen your poking stick and you say, well, let's put them in, let's put them out, let's see what the impact is, and let's use our brain to figure out what to do with them as we present them to the reader. I would see those as not an exhaustive list, but my first three. I dismiss one. I think it is a pox on the field to ignore them. We established in the non-normality episode, we both hate transformations. Yep. So then I guess it distills down to use your brain. <laughs> 
Well, there is something else besides using your brain, and that is to use non-parametric procedures yeah. that are less sensitive to these points. So there's using your brain versus non-parametrics, which does that make it not using your brain? You can use your brain with non-parametrics, <laughs> right? Okay. Windsor okay. was a smart uh-huh. guy and he's now a uh-huh. verb, right? Anybody uh-huh. whose name becomes a verb, not just a proper noun. But when somebody says, did you Windsorize your distribution? I mean, you know you've hit the big time when, one, uh-huh. your name has become either a verb or, two, uh-huh. a drink. If you've achieved uh-huh. either of those things, it's like, man, uh-huh. I had a uh-huh. day today. I think I want a double Hancock. <laughs> Is that you know that you've achieved something in your life. What if someone says, Dear God, I hope he doesn't cur in it. You heard that, huh? Ben. Yeah. Well, my students <laughs> oh my say God, that yes. all the time. It's like a mulligan. Do I get a cur in on oh, that one? <laughs> my grant didn't even get scored. Man, uh. did we cur in it. All right. So non-parametric, you have feelings? <laughs> I'm not going to take a public stand of being anti-non-parametric. That's a very reasonable approach and one that I think is underutilized in our field. But in the spirit of you dance with who brung you, mm-hmm. I would rather stick with my general linear model and all the accoutrement that I get with that. And to determine... Are there one or a small number of observations that are driving a particular finding of particular import to my study? So yeah, big fan of non-parametrics. I don't know if I've ever published a paper in my life that has used them. Yeah, I'm also certainly not anti-non-parametric techniques. I think you just have to be careful to know what hypotheses they are testing. and Because they're not always testing the exact same hypotheses that parametric procedures are testing. Median tests are not the same as mean tests. All right, let's move into the poke and stick framework. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the poke and stick approach that you tend to take. How would you flesh that out for us? It is so uninspiring. Mm -hmm. I kind of do what you would think just based on common sense as I try to find out if there are one or a small number of observations that are impacting my results in a way that may be out of proportion to the weight Mm -hmm. that they would otherwise carry in a sample. So I don't use the word unduly influencing because I got to tell you, 12-year-old kids who are drinking five or more drinks in a row are influencing the results of my Mm -hmm. model. I don't think it's unduly influencing them. That's a pejoratively valenced phrase, but it is impacting the results in a way that other observations are not. I put them in, I take them out, and I try to make a theoretically an informed determination as to whether are they valid responses, Mm -hmm. are they representative of my population. Whether I keep them or not, I present that in the body of the text to say we did a complement of regression diagnostics, three were identified, we removed these, Mm -hmm. although there were some impact on inferences, we believe these are representative of the population and we have no reason to remove them, and these were thus retained for the analyses. And so the reader is aware, oh, you got a triplet of people who are driving these, but they made an informed decision that they're not unduly or inappropriately doing so. And that is your job as a scientist. I'm going to come back to that. That is absolutely your job as a scientist to note the process, defend the decisions that you have made. For me, what it underscores is the importance of having a lot of information about the cases because sometimes it helps you to go back and figure out. In your case, Polly said, well, those are the juvie kids, right? To know that they're the juvie kids requires that you know information about the individuals, or at least you have gathered information because at the end of the day, you have to decide whether or not these people a representative of the population to which you wish to generalize. I was working with some people who were doing a foreign language study where they were using different methods of teaching foreign languages in classrooms. And some of the data that were gathered were really just kind of bizarre. And it turned out that a lot of schools were using foreign language classes as a place to put native speakers so that they could learn English, right? So you have someone who doesn't speak English, they go in there. Well, that person is just going to completely wreck whatever data you're gathering about foreign language instruction because that person is actually fluent. Ideally, that person would have been screened initially. Ideally, there would have been some criteria that said, you know, are you a native speaker? 
Thank you, Qualtrics, for screening these people out. Oftentimes, the information doesn't come to light on the back end. That's just the reality of it. So I completely support the idea that you're examining these cases. I completely support your prerogative to remove those cases. I just require that people tell the compelling story that goes with this decision. And embrace the subjectivity of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Embrace that our science is not this just rote, programmed, step-by-step. You are an expert in what you do. You are an expert in the theory. You are an expert in how the data came to you. I really think this whole move of questionable research practices and researcher degrees Mm -hmm. of freedom and all of this has had a very positive beneficial effect. I'm not going to argue against that. And it is a Mm -hmm. core cause of the replication crisis. I'm all on board with that. But I also think Mm -hmm. it has us terrified, right? It's almost like this 1940s Russia that you don't want to talk to your neighbor (laughs) or say anything because you're going to be reported and people are naming names. What is the exact number? of communists that are loose today in these defense plans. And he found a significant effect, but it's because he dropped three cases and found evidence for his treatment. Here's your one-way ticket to Siberia. I mean, we have been like beaten to death to not look at our data and allow our data to speak to us and make a thoughtful and informed decision about who do we believe should be in that sample and not in that sample and what are the implications. I think our field is poorer for not doing that. Completely agree. If you put in a bunch of rules to preclude subjectivity, you might actually be precluding the judgment that the scientist needs when dealing with data. Oh, there we go. Uh, I think it's your, your turn. turn. Right? <laughs> it's my turn. I think it's your turn. What was your last one? Oh, the bones. Yeah, and then you decided that was about you, and so you <laughs> talked about your broken bones. <laughs> go ahead and do the competition one. <laughs> no, how about this? I can do the splits. You know what? I have heard rumor that you can do the splits. I don't believe you. I have not seen it. We are empiricists. Dude, you are right now in a closet. I am concerned about you. You are in a closet with paint cans and acetone. And listeners, there's another story behind this as to why he's in a closet with paint cans and acetones. I want to see his splits right now. Because I don't believe you. (laughs) This is (laughs) self-report. Did I also tell you I'm above average on incredulity? (laughs) All right, I'm doing the splits. Are you ready? Watch the acetone can. That can't go well. I love the smell of acetone, though. See if I have room. Let me get the phone if I need to call Goldie. Because going into the splits and coming out of the splits are two different things. I got it. Verify. Verify. I stand corrected. Listeners, I am... Stop recording! Stop recording! Oh, I wish I I had video. Was that worth it? Could you have not just said that you could do that and I not believe you and you live with that? God, my right butt cheek is seizing up. Where were we? Does it matter? I need more acetone. I really wish we were doing some kind of live video stream because (laughs) it wasn't just the cries of pain, but the look on your face was priceless. All right, so another Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the others. Something that you did not throw at me as a gotcha, which I know you love doing with me. What's that, a gotcha? A gotcha. Is Mm -hmm. I have waxed poetic about how I love DF fits, how I love DF betas, how I love studentized deleted residuals and all of that. Yet, a couple of episodes ago, I say I don't use regression because there are all these other reasons to move to the SEM. There is a gaping disjoint between those two. And maybe this is where we could move into a new segment on quantitude. Name that dissertation. (laughs) I want somebody out there to do a dissertation and program up DF fits and DF betas and studentized deleted residuals and throw Cook's distance in for Greg just to shut him up. (laughs) 
for the SCM. Why are these not standard output in every SCM? I couldn't agree more. That disturbs me. Absolutely. There are these basic principles that have been fleshed out in tremendous detail for models that we, on the whole, and with all due respect, consider rather primitive, rather limiting. All of those concepts extend so naturally to this broader modeling framework, they extend further as well into global and local fit assessments, the extent to which those are sensitive to individual observations. I don't know why it's not routine. And in fact, given the computational power that we have right now, we don't even have to do this on an individual case basis, right? This is one of the challenges in detecting outliers is that sometimes it's difficult to be able to detect outliers when there are multiple such outliers, right? Because I pull one out and the, the other ones that are just like it are holding down the fort and you don't really detect that. But we have the computational power to be able to look at these things in terms of subsets of scores as well. So absolutely name that dissertation. These kinds of things should be out there. They should be done right now. And why it's a dissertation level work is it's not just a programming problem. Mm -hmm. Part of it, it is, is we need somebody who knows way more about programming than me to do all of this just in a mechanical way. Imagine a path analysis. We can do all the things that hold for regression. It just needs to be scaled up and put into standard SEM packages. But as you're alluding to, a lot of novel and unique work needs to be done. So everything that we've talked about has been single case. And so what about these clusters? Mm -hmm. What about little mini mixtures, right? How do we go about yes. doing that? And again, it's not just a programming. It's not combinatorial. We're going to estimate the model dropping one case, and then we're going to estimate the model dropping two cases. No, right. it's how might we use that magical hat matrix to make a list yeah. of usual suspects that might be a triplet or a quartet or a quintet or whatever. There's novel work there, but also what about latent variables? All right, so yep. it's easy to get a residual estimate for a manifest variable, but a latent variable that's dependent in an SEM, that's an endogenous factor, it has a zeta sub i. Well, in the standard estimation of an SEM, we don't have an estimate of zeta sub i hat, right? We mm -hmm. need factor scores. Well, how do you go about getting a case-based residual estimate for a latent variable? Now we have DF fits and DF betas for factor Loadings, right? How do we do that in a CFA? It should be standard in a confirmatory factor analysis. But even one more is in a mediated effect, we could have a DF beta for an indirect effect. If we have X predicting Y1 predicting Y2 predicting Y3, there's a DF beta for each of those regression coefficients, but there's also a DF mm -hmm. beta for the mediated effect because we're taking the product of those. And so you've got the juvie kids who are a little bit influencing the first link, a little bit influencing the second link, a little bit influencing the third link. But when you take the product of those three, then they're way out in the cornfields of Nebraska. No offense, Becca. <laughs> it's only in the product of those that we find it. So not only, I think, is yeah. they're bringing in well-established stuff from the regression model that we could use profitably within the SEM, I think there's a lot of exciting, novel, innovative work that could be done at the level of this more complicated, simultaneous equation-like approach. Mm -hmm. But everything I was just prattling on is still more standard kind of stuff that's ported over from the regression. But as we explored mm -hmm. on a prior episode, the regression model is saturated. It's not a model of fit. And so you alluded to these things could be scaled up at the level of evaluating fit. Absolutely. Not just sort of this collective multivariate change in the parameter estimates, but actually the extent to which the model itself comports with the data that we have. One little way to think about it is that a chi-square can be thought of as a sum of a lot of independent z-squareds. We can take each individual's observation in a maximum likelihood world and figure out the extent to which each observation is making a contribution to the likelihood and then in turn making a contribution to the chi-square statistic. We can examine the extent to which observations maybe are contributing disproportionately. 
and what might happen if that observation were removed from that. And then by extension, how that ties to a lot of different fit indices, whether or not they're built upon the chi-square or are computed entirely differently. All of this is possible. And I would say not just possible, I would say all of this is actually necessary. I think all of this symbolizes a way we really need to be thinking about our data. I think we are so often in the world that you and I live in, we think about the models so, so much. But I think we also have to be thinking about the data. The data is not really getting enough of our attention. So it would be nice, I think, if we as scientists think a bit more about the source of the data that we have, any potential anomalies in our data, and as you say, poke and stick those data. See what impact those have in our broader frame of inference. So for me, this is a way of thinking. I agree completely. And it's a philosophy of science issue. Mm -hmm. So I'm teaching research methods now. And last night I read Platt and Popper on strong inference and falsification and what Uh makes a theory scientific. Let me read you. Hang on. All right. I'm over here. Just a second. (laughs) Wait. All right. There is... All right, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. Past the naval battle section. I passed the naval battle and into the unedited version of The Stand, which I don't know if any of you read that one from Stephen King. Yeah, Yeah. with an extra thousand pages. I was going to say is it mostly (laughs) highlights why authors have editors. Uh This is John Platt, Strong Inference, 1964 Science. I think it should be required reading for anybody in what we do and the work that we do. It's one of my favorite opening paragraphs of all time. Let me just read very briefly. Mm -hmm. It's not very long. Scientists Mm -hmm. these days tend to keep up a polite fiction that all science is equal, except for the work of the misguided opponent whose arguments we happen to be refuting at the time. We speak as though every scientist's fields and methods of study are as good as every other scientist and perhaps a little better. This keeps us all cordial when it comes to recommending each other for government grants. Is that the most (laughs) awesome opening paragraph? What we're talking about here really strikes at the core of philosophy of science and ways of knowing. Mm -hmm. Having as a lens that, yes, we have theory. Yes, we have derived hypotheses. Yes, we're trying to balance inductive and deductive reasoning in the process of science. But we also have to let the data speak to us. We have to turn back to maybe one of the greatest philosophers of science ever to live, being Clint Eastwood, who says a person's got to know their own limitations. If your mediated effect is being driven by five observations, you have to know that. It doesn't mean that you have to remove them. It doesn't mean that your theory isn't right, but you have to be aware the extent to which that's being influenced by these cases and the potential limitations on both the internal and external validity of the inferences that you're drawing from those results. Uh, you want to end on a ding? Wait, it's your ding. I pulled a butt muscle. It's your ding. (laughs) There is a new excuse. I can tell my chair, I'm sorry I didn't do the teaching review I was assigned. I pulled a butt muscle. Oh, then I take the ding back. All right. You know what? I'm going to take this ding. And I'm going to say that I am unusual in the fact that I think you're a pretty damn decent guy. How about that? That is deeply (laughs) unusual. (laughs) Tying back to the opening, that is simultaneously an outlier. It has high leverage and it has high influence. (laughs) I'm going to go back to my acetone now. Thank you for the conversation today. I think there's a lot, actually, we could continue to feed on philosophy of science, other things as well. Maybe those would be good conversations for the future. And someone, please do one or two or three dissertations. Mm -hmm. I should really rephrase that. Not one person do three dissertations. (laughs) Three people do each a dissertation. But if you're out for a run, find your thinking log and design a dissertation that not only ports these things over to the SEM or other methods. We don't only do SEM as Mm -hmm. any multivariate space in the kind of work that we do. You can ask Mm -hmm. yourself these questions and we need these tools. And so please develop these things because Greg and I aren't going to do it. We're too old, man. If it's like I'm out of ideas, my brain is full and I'm out of (laughs) ideas. And I'm massaging my butt huffing acetone. (laughs) 
as another outlier. <laughs> you do every time we record. <laughs> they didn't need to know that. <laughs> bye bye. Take care. Bye. Hey, couponers. Don't forget to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they usually go to get podcasts recorded with no pants on. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message and listen to past episodes. And finally, you can get super cool Quantitude merch on Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to help support remote access in low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, pushing the boundaries of the signal-to-noise ratio. Wait, scratch that. Pushing the boundaries of the noise-to-signal ratio. Today's episode was sponsored by the Society for Interesting Statistics, who thought it would be interesting for you to know that if you took all 7.83 billion people on Earth and had them hold hands around the equator, most would drown. And by professorized deleted residuals. Unlike studentized deleted residuals, this involves talking so much about so little the cases in your data set just get up and leave on their own. And finally, by NPR, who wishes you to know that they are in complete agreement with, and indeed are grateful for, the following. This is most definitely not NPR. This is Quinn. And Tate. We are Greg Hancock's sons. We have been asked to comment on ways that our dad is an outlier. So many ways. He's really smart. Yeah, crazy smart. And funny. Yeah, super funny. Best jokes ever. Very witty and clever. And he's handsome, right? Totally. Like, off the charts handsome. And those abs. Sick abs. Like, eight pack. At least. Maybe a ten pack. How's that? Dad? Yeah, can we get a PS5 now? At least food? Please?